Hi everyone, today is April 25th, 2013. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's neurobiology podcast. Our guest today is Daniel Ansari, who is an associate professor of psychology uh, and the Mind Brain Institute with a cross appointment at um, the Department of Education at the University of Western Ontario. Um, his lab investigates the neural basis and development of numerical cognition using behavioral, functional, and structural brain imaging methods. Hi, Daniel. Hi. So around the room, we have Nicole Witcha. Hello. We have Todd Troyer. Hello. We have Jim Bauer. Hello again. And we have Charlie Wilson. Hi. And I'm your host, Salma Karashi. So um, we've had many discussions here with cognitive psychologists about uh, aligning the vocabulary of psychology and neuroscience to understand the neural basis of behavior. You're our first guest who is interested in another important alignment, in this case, neuroscience with education research. Um, so first, I, th I thought we could just talk briefly about this new field of, I guess it's called either neuroeducation or uh, there's another name. Edu neuroeducation. <laughs> I actually prefer the term mind, brain, and education mind, because it right. takes into account the cognitive psych exactly. psychological level of explanation. Right, right. And then, you know, just just maybe talk about what common language is being established to frame the brain as a substrate um, that has translational significance to education researchers and practitioners. Because in my experience, education people don't really care about the brain. And mm -hmm. I know that's terrible mm -hmm. to say, so you mm -hmm. should disabuse me of that, mm -hmm. please. Well, I guess it depends who you mean by education people, whether you mean faculty members or, or teachers. In my experience, teachers are very keen to learn more about the brain. But the basic idea behind mind, brain, and education is that, you know, uh, with non-invasive <coughs> techniques to measure brain function and to measure the development of the brain both at the functional and structural level, we've made insights that potentially could be very informative for education. And certainly in the domain of learning disorders such as dyslexia, I think there's been a lot of progress made uh, by using brain imaging methodologies. We can now do things such as neuroprognostics where brain imaging uh, technology, you know, structural functional imaging is actually more predictive of uh, who will recover from an intervention than behavioral data alone. Uh, but it's still very much in the infancy. In infancy. Uh, the way I think about it is um, teachers are orchestrators of neuronal plasticity. They change their students' brains. So for me, it's, an, pardon the pun, a no-brainer that the brain and education <laughs> should be connected to one another. Uh, there's absolutely no doubt that the brain is deeply involved in education. But as I said earlier, I think the term mind brain in education is really important because there's levels of explanation, you know, re uh, ranging all the way from cellular to systems levels. And in order to bridge between those levels of explanation, we need other disciplines as well, such as cognitive psychology. So I certainly wouldn't put it in a knowledge hierarchy where the brain sits at the top and psychology comes beneath it. But the two things, you know, in, in a cognitive neuroscience way of thinking about it are certainly both informative to education. So, I don't want to jump in because it seems like this is a really is really an important point where it seems like a lot of the real value of the real intersection between mind, brain, and education has to do with uh, the imaging and other kinds of things is boosting the cognitive psychology, all the stuff we know about. We know a ton of stuff about the way people learn and whatever. It's much more of a boost about of that kind of approach to things and the other stuff about linking to real mechanisms and stuff is a lot harder and maybe less, much more tenuous about its value for education or long term down the road. 
But I think the way it gets, or sometimes it certainly crosses over into the press that you're now doing something completely different about. Now we know how the brain does it, and it's different than we, we knew about it the way before, and it's some completely new stuff. So it seems like a real disconnect about the, what, what seems like the real promise and what really comes out there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think there's a real danger in exactly what you say, that people think that neuroscience is completely different from the cognitive level of explanation. And I think one of the duties of the field of mind-brain and education is to collect, correct a lot of uh, misconceptions about the brain as well that educators have. The idea of left versus right brain, the idea that we only use 10% of our brain, the idea of certain learning styles where there's no empirical support for the existence of them. It's just pervasive throughout education. Um, the other problem that exists is that there's work showing that um, psychology undergraduate students, if they view a faulty piece of evidence, if they view it with a brain image inside the article, they're much more likely to trust it than without. So there's this allure of neuroscience as well, which I think is very dangerous. So, And going back to what you said at the very beginning, this idea that um, the role of neuroscience is for boosting what we already know from cognitive psychology and maybe for slightly altering it. But it certainly isn't the, the grand revolution that it sometimes painted as. I agree with that. So education research, just by necessity, has to be so integrative in terms of you know demography, ethnicity, culture, interpersonal relations, all this stuff. Um, and are we, as neuroscientists, capable of dealing with that much stuff? I mean, just in terms of talking about mechanisms no. of brain activity. I mean, that's what, to me, the, the little bit I know about education research is just so deeply founded in, in all this diversity of experience and diversity of learning types and method, and, you know, these innate abilities. And I mean, is that a language that we can even relate to? I don't think in its completeness, you know, and I don't think the expectation should be that neuroscience in some ways replaces completely all the other approaches that are out there. It's another source of evidence that may be appropriate for some, though not all, problems that educational researchers address. It's a multi-method, um, uh, multi-approach enterprise. I think one of the real, uh, the way I perceive it, one of the real benefits of this hype around neuroscience and its connection to education is to bring evidence-based uh, uh, practice about and to bring empirical evidence into education because what I and I talked earlier about the difference between members of faculties of education and teachers because they're very different. Members of faculties of education typically are very resistant to any kind of empirical research. You know, there's a lot of qualitative research which I think has a strong role, but quantitative research certainly, you know, is often frowned upon. And I've had that experience personally, having been a faculty member in, in a faculty of education and now sort of being affiliated with one, where the focus is very qualitative and it's very hard to convince people of the, of the value of empirical research as a whole, neuroscience being part of that. So I totally agree with you, you know, that the complexity, we can't capture that, but, but we, we have that problem even within neuroscience as a discipline, right, which is why we have so many different types of neurosciences. Right. Um, so dyslexia, you mentioned dyslexia, mm. does that present a roadmap for sort of, because that now there's a huge 
like canon of literature and education that is really, I mean, it's about as brain-based as you can get in education based on dyslexia. Now, your work is based on numerical cognition, um, and I guess the, the numerical correlate for dyslexia is dyscalculia. Yeah. Is that right? So um, is there sort of a, is there a roadmap that you sort of can follow based on, on the work that's been done with dyslexia um, that can sort of translate to dyscalculia and has is it is it being followed because i don't know much about this yeah we 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 are always following dyslexia in some ways in the field of dyscalculia uh well you know in the sense this dyslexia research really started to kick off and be very successful when people started focusing on low-level predictors of later success phonological awareness, mapping between graphemes and phonemes as critical predictors early on of later outcomes, you know, work in Finland showing and also by Dennis Molfisi here in the United States showing that you can use ERPs in, in at six months, I believe it is, of age uh, during language processing and predict who's going to end up being dyslexic and have a language difficulty. And so in math, we've also shifted uh, a lot towards trying to identify sort of the phonological awareness equivalent in the domain of math. And research in my lab and many other labs are showing that children's ability to understand quantities, relate quantities to one another, especially in a symbolic form, are very predictive of later outcomes. And I think we chose that research strategy partly because of what has happened in dyslexia. Dyscalculia is very behind for every 14 studies on dyslexia, there's one on dyscalculia, so... Uh, so, uh, <clears throat> when you relate neuroscience to education, right, there's sort of a process of being able to predict, you know, who might develop a particular problem, and then there's the second order, the sort of, but the core question is, what do you do about it? And as you know now, there are, you know, if you're a teacher in the United States, you can sign up for a lot of money to go hang out for a weekend with a bunch of neuroscientists, and you can't see me on the tape, but I'm using the uh, double asterisk or the... Air quote alert. Air quote alert. Mm -hmm. Neuroscientists who will tell you for fabulous amounts of money how you can change your classroom based on current neuroscience research. So my question is... How much do you really think neuroscience has to say to a really good fifth grade teacher teaching children? I guess, but it's also, it's not a unidirectional conversation, mm -hmm. right? So neuroscientists are also learning what questions to study based on what's happening in the classroom. So, Sure, but what I'm saying is identifying that someone early on has a problem, which means you can do early interventions, etc. But how much from what we core know about neuroscience could actually right now improve the teaching of a good teacher in fifth grade? That's the question. I don't think, I don't think the, the bridge is ready for that kind of direct translation. I think, and, and I think that's expecting too much, and I think that's a real pitfall for the entire enterprise and for some of the promising, more indirect pathways that can be made. One of the things where I think neuroscience can play a, a really big role is in early teacher training, teacher education. Teachers should know something about brain plasticity. They should know the right things about brain plasticity, and that can indirectly inform their practice and their conceptualization of their students. 
right now teachers are still learning, at least this is true in Canada, sure. about Piaget. That's, that's what they learn. That's, that's their understanding of cognitive development. And so I think updating that, deepening that, um, you know, you would never question that a medical uh, professional who ends up becoming a gastroenterologist should really have a deep understanding of the molecular biology of the cell. But it's not that every day when they practice medicine, they're applying that knowledge directly. So I think, I think that's a very powerful, powerful way. And then as Nicole has said, also the feedback loop, that education can pose new problems for neuroscience. And, and maybe that's the way in which eventually it will have an impact. But it's a very young, young enterprise. I think young what else the benefits of people learning about science, not just... Um, so the first level of learning about science is to learn all the things that people have discovered. And the mm -hmm. second level of learning about science is to learn how everything they've discovered is suspect mm -hmm. and is, is probably wrong and mm -hmm. subject to revision to at a later time. And if people don't, if, if teachers knew, I think, more about that aspect mm -hmm. of science, they would be uh, emboldened to try things on their own rather than to do some kind of dogmatic uh, thing that they, because they've been told Piaget had it all figured out and so you just have to follow mm -hmm. what he says. I think that's not just true of teachers. I think it would probably benefit nearly everybody to gain some skepticism about science, but healthy, uh, positive uh, kind of skepticism. Not to, uh, but so, so, but it, one of the ways in which um, you can find an immediate application, hopefully, is in, I mean, dyscalculia is a very not new concept um, as, you know, finding kids that have problems with math. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that you're trying to do is find better ways of, of just figuring out who has a problem right. and what mm -hmm. is causing that problem so that they can change the teaching practices for those particular individuals. But of course, the, the second part of that is how you change the teaching practices based on what we might know about the brain, and that's a much further... I should say, by the way, you're, you're in Canada. I was recently at a meeting in Toronto uh, where people were talking about, it was a venture capital meeting, so a bunch of people talking about new approaches to venture capital. One of them stood up and said, we have a new learning company, we have a new learning fund, okay? And to get money from us, you have to demonstrate using brain imaging that your company's product actually has the effect on the brain that you claim, okay? And he then went on to say, I'm sure there's no one in the room that knows anything about brain imaging, and unfortunately I had to inform him that that was not the case. But there's an enormous... I'm surprised you did that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not like you, Jim. Well, usually, uh, usually I'm so quiet and never make trouble, but... Um, so, there, there's an... As you know, I mean, there's a bubble now, especially with imaging, uh, where in, in the co corporate world, people are using brain imaging to justify all kinds of stuff, and in the education, the, the sort of the bubble that is currently the educational world, which is yet another bubble, tech, ed tech stuff, MRI is everywhere, okay? I'm not blaming you for that. <laughs> but I'd love to have your uh, sort of thoughts about how one does something about that. Yeah, it really worries me, you know, and... and I think it ties into your point about informing people how to think critically about evidence. And most teachers don't have that ability, and they they just want to know what's the solution, what can I do, what can I do tomorrow, what can I implement? 
and they have no idea that in most brain imaging data we're dealing with differences of 0.03% signal change. Uh, and, you know, that oftentimes reaction time or simple accuracy data can give you more reliable results. But that's not to say that there's no value in these images, but they're complementary. And I always try to highlight that whenever I talk to teachers, it's about these levels of analyses and the complementarity between the two, not to think that neuroscience is suddenly offering something, or you know, it's scary that companies are now requesting that you need to have proof of principles through brain imaging, which seems, in my estimation, to be unlikely. Well, actually, the, I, I use, in responding to this particular person, I used the, the, the phrase phrenology, mm -hmm. um, which I'm sure you've heard. Of course. Yes. <laughs> Before we get to your actual um, to work, um, I just, I wanted to ask, the, when you look at functional imaging data, you collapse all this variability, and it's all about, you know, sort of mean average responses to things, but then education stuff is so much about variability and understanding distinct aspects of people's learning abilities. So how do you get past that level of, of sort of disconnect? Well, you know, I mean, as you saw in my presentation today, I do a lot of work where we try to use brain imaging to exactly explain individual differences in achievement. So an individual differences approach is critical, of course, in recognizing those individual differences. But individual differences are also tricky because you can talk about quantitative versus qualitative individual differences. And my feeling is that in education, there's an overemphasis on qualitative differences that are actually quantitative in nature. So this idea that every single child learns in a completely different way, that there's no way in which we're alike, seems to me to be a little bit of an over-exaggeration of what is actually a difference in magnitude rather than an orthogonal difference, something that you can really dissociate. Um, but I, you know, brain imaging is capable, to some extent, of capturing individual differences as I showed today. So you're doing some of this with yeah. these, these uh, quantitative methodologies, the fractional, uh, or actually looking at um, mm. structural differences in, yeah. in, in brains. Yeah. So do you want to talk about some of that? Or? Uh, describe the work. Actually, let's go back first to, to sort of the brain organization for math and yeah. some of the work you, you've done on that and maybe some of the uh, changes that you see over time and mm -hmm. how that maybe may present itself as potentially relating to different strategies that people use over time to get at calculations. Yeah, yeah. So, we, I mean, in, in calculation, we see uh, that the, the brain mechanisms change over developmental time, that there seems to be a gradual specialization of, of the left hemisphere, in particular in the left temporal parietal cortex, so at the intersection between the temporal and the parietal lobe, where brain regions become increasingly involved in, in calculation over developmental time. And then interestingly, the same brain regions also differ between high and low achievers. They're modulated by strategies, so you're more likely to engage them when you retrieve an answer to an arithmetic problem versus when you use a procedural problem-solving strategy such as counting or decomposing the problems into multiple parts. So in a way, there's sort of a, a confluence of what we understand about development and what we understand about individual differences. And then we also know from structural brain imaging that variability in the white matter structures directly underlying the gray matter uh, regions that seem to be involved in the function, that these underlying white matter structures and variability within them is also related to math achievement. So we've, we found out a lot about the, the sort of circuitry in the left hemisphere that seems to be 
So it seems to be important for math. What we don't know is how different teaching approaches, for example, influence the structuring of those brain systems. And that would be really interesting to, to do, to, to really manipulate the input in order to see how these brains become structured in the way we are. And so far, we're just documenting, really. When you see the white matter differences, yeah. I mean, does that mean that there are fewer axons? Is that how that ought to be interpreted? Or that they're the same number of axons, but they have different amount of myelination? What's the best way to think about those differences? So we don't know, uh, you know, fractional anisotropy is a nice measure, but we don't know exactly what it represents in terms of the specific, you know, more axons, more myelin. Um, one way of constraining that is by breaking fractional anisotropy down into multiple parameters, so axial versus radial diffusivity. And in animal models, we've learned that uh, radial diffusivity is more strongly related to myelination. And, and radial diffusivity negatively correlates with competence, for example, in our case, in, in, in math, but it's also been shown in other domains, suggesting that maybe some of these uh, individual differences l are related to myelination and degree of myelination of certain Ch white matter tracts. Charlie, you need a larger tube to push a second order differential equation through than you do sort of a standard <laughs> arithmetic. You didn't know that? What if you have more? <laughs> no, it's actually, the brain is not actually wires, it's actually more like a system the of tubes. tubes. It's a system of tubes. <laughs> <laughs> those, those big nasty equations just are gnarly. I you thought know? You need a bigger the one. computer yeah, thing holds up. This is really what Yeah, So I, but I'd like to pursue it a little bit more because radial diffusivity is measuring how well things water diffuses perpendicular yes. to the direction of the axons, mm -hmm. right? And so, um, if there's a lot of myelin, but uh, water can't cross the cell membrane. So even if there's just one layer of of membrane, it seems like but the water Charlie, we don't, we don't even know what FM, what the bold signal in fMRI is with respect to neurons. But this, so in some ways, this sounds easier to me because it seems like this has to do with water, you know, water. mechanical restrictions on the diffusion of water, which mm -hmm. is simpler to me than blood flow and blood oxygenation, which is a lot more actively controlled. So I was just. I was just trying to see, well, I mean, okay, your position is we can't know this stuff, but I'm just trying no, to figure out... No, 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 I'm not saying we can't know it, it's we, don't, we don't know. Don't know, okay. So but just, just help me understand the limits on what we do and don't know. So if we had a whole lot of, it seems to me, I'm, I'm a noob when it comes to this, mm -hmm. so I don't know anything about it, but if we had a lot of big axons, a small number of big axons, then there would be a lot of radial diffusion because they could diffuse from one side of the axon to the other. If we had a large number of small axons, we would have less radial well, water, diffusion. Is that right? No, water is quite actively controlled. I mean, yes, oxygen is very actively controlled, but water is actively controlled too. I mean, edema, for example. So would you say that what I just said is wrong, that like this? No, no I, axon but I'm, not, I'm sure there are probably a whole pile of other ways in which you can change the diffusion of water. But is this, this diffusion is mostly in the extracellular space, or...? I mean, is that what uh, it's mostly measuring? Uh, also, I mean, we're measuring at such a large, large scale. But I think it has to be mostly intracellular water because there's a lot more intracellular water in the white matter than there is extracellular water. Yeah, but the question is, well, how far does it go, right? So people have been working for wow. 15 years at least to try to figure out, you know, in a case where, yes, control of oxygen, oxygenation is a complex thing. On the one hand, on the other hand, it is sort of 
directly connected to the metabolic activity, probably of neurons. So people have been working for 15 years to figure out what you're measuring when you're measuring the bolt signal yeah. with respect to neurons, and nobody knows. Uh, well, we logothetes and others have shown well, that, that. It turns out that work has serious problems. So I mean, I know. Yeah. I know. I mean, the person that's probably at the top of the food chain in this is uh, Anna Devore, who works at MGH and at and at San Diego. And she's been doing very careful scatter-type experiments and other sorts of experiments to try to find out what the signal actually means. And it is much more... That, that, so the that local paper, field potentials versus action potential stuff doesn't really hold? The, the problem is, to, to really figure it out, you need a really complex model, mm. which we don't really have, of how what the relationship is between oxygenation and... Uh, so you're doing correlation studies, yes. and they're dangerous, mm. as you know. So correlation is not causality. And yeah. I just think most diffusion of, of water and a bunch of parallel tubes is a lot simpler Could problem. And there ought to be there ought to be an answer to the question that I was asking, but obviously no. Well, you're just I, think there, I think there is a closer answer. I, think, I just don't think we know the physics uh -huh. of it. <laughs> no, but so here, who cares? I mean, if I, if okay. you if you get a measure, Charlie cares. Charlie cares. He's a who. But, but if, if from your point of view, so this is sort of the mind side of things, right? If you can come up with a measure that predicts when a child is likely to have a problem, and then let's imagine you come up with a measure that actually can track whether this particular therapy is working or not, right? Why does he care about the neurons? Well, I can't be... Uh, I, I, I know what you do. No, I mean, the, the, the reason I'm motivated by this white matter issue is because you could imagine the people are just endowed with different mm -hmm. amounts of white matter. And that isn't it doesn't have anything to do with teaching methods or anything. Oh, like absolutely. That. That's totally unclear from because it's going back to the point of correlations. These are correlations. So, so if you knew, like if every if all if all the people had the same number of accents, but some accents had more myelin on them or, or that mm. other, then it could be controlled. It would mean, you know, maybe uh, some dynamic control of myelination would be a would be something under like so uh, environmental math savants of which there are or or I haven't, but others have in single case studies showing you know using functional structural imaging enlargement of parietal brain gray matter as well as responses so there's a wonderful book that was written by a friend of mine a long time ago. It's probably out of press now that actually analyzed the math savants from the last century in Europe mm hmm it turns out a very large number of them started out as shepherd boys and went sitting in fields with nothing to do, playing with pebbles on the ground. Uh, no flashcards in this case. Well, pebbles, pebbles are, are like flashcards, flash yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't think so. They don't have an answer on the back. No. <laughs> Is that the problem? We could just not turn them around. <laughs> so, which gets to a sort of a question I asked earlier in your talk, which is that there have been very, I mean, math, like many things, goes through these trends and on the education side, you know, new math is the one that everyone immediately recognizes, although they don't, any of them know what, what it was, it turns out, when you ask them. But anyway, so there are various new, way, different strategies that come, become popular. And one of the things that's popular now is, uh, which you talked about in your talk to some extent, in fact, one of the things you were contrasting in your talk was the difference between sort of rote recall on the one hand, in some sense, and, and calculating with some sort of a higher order mechanism or method, a solution to a problem, 
And one of the things you said in your talk, if I got it right, was that one of the things that happens sort of looks like naturally in the development of math competency is you shift from doing sort of more <coughs> rote stuff to doing things that more have large conception. Oh, I thought so, you yeah, 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 the other way. If you're better at procedural. Yeah, the other way. Yeah. Well, that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So these days, no, well, <laughs> it matters, you know. <laughs> Who cares? To go from road learning to more conceptual things or procedural things versus four yeah. procedural things to more. It's not really road learning. The mapping to the, to the dichotomy is not so, yeah, yeah. Uh, so yeah. obvious. But from my point of view, it's just a sign, you know, a sign between friends or whatever. <laughs> anyway, the, the question is this. Um, Schools now are much more sort of teaching tricks, if you want to think of it that way. I mean, my kids come home with fancy ways they can use their hands, for example, to do calculations, which previously, and Charlie would prefer they just did flashcards. But so my question is, have you looked or will you look at how what the schools are actually doing interacts with the end result? Yeah, I mean, that's that's the eventual hope that we can control curricula and identify what those curricula really teach and, and, and use that information to, to understand which, which curricula are more, most effective and also then just out of real curiosity is how do they differentially structure the brain mechanisms involved. So. These schools have been doing these giant experiments on a, on a massive scale forever. Yes. Uh, my sister was is a... Uh, elementary school teacher and in her, during her career they had her shift the way yeah. she they forced her to shift the way yeah. she taught several times each one of these was a giant experiment based on somebody's theory or somebody's conjecture about what would work but that's the point them, it's about the conjecture it's not about the data right it's about the conjectures and, and about the belief the, it's an opinion all, all the data that was generated in all those experiments was just lost it, yes it basically that's, that's just a real crying show. shame yeah, yeah. So I, I have a question. Um, so is math competence fully dissociable from IQ? And in terms of IQ, uh, is there like a neural signature for that correlates with IQ? I don't. I, I hate talking about IQ, but I feel like it, it always <laughs> so comes do out. I. Um, no, math is not. Of course, it depends on which IQ test you're using. You know, some IQ tests have a strong math component to them. So then, of course, the two are correlated. Um, and but IQ is supposed to be this global thing that, you know, this sort of transcends. I mean, isn't that the way it's always been conceived? As a no, I don't think so. I think IQ is is a very hotly, you know, the, the, yeah. Uh, okay. In so my that's... in my view, and I'm I'm by far not an IQ expert, but the way I view IQ tests is IQ is whatever the test measures, right? And what well, the but, test but measures reflects our priorities is deeply cultural in, in some sense, what we put into those tests. So, But when you IQ match your subjects, it's yeah. based on one, partic one particular type of IQ It's just measure. based on just... one verbal and one nonverbal IQ scale, yeah. Well, like, you know, there, you can break tests down uh, very, very roughly into those that are trying to predict future performance and those that are actually measuring what you've already accomplished. Mm. And IQ is, I mean, so the SAT score, the SAT system, which came out of Princeton, right, uh, was really about predicting future performance in college. That was the idea. The ACT tests, which came out of a company in Iowa, uh, so red state, blue state we got going on here, was much more about uh, actually measuring true achievement 
achievement at the current state rather than predicting future achievement. Predicting future stuff is much more complicated than, mm. than actually measuring current Sort of achievement. fluid versus crystallized intelligence. Yes. None of the colleges yeah. I applied to wanted ACTs, though. Oh, that's that shifted matter? now, actually. There's that was a million a, years As of ago. this year, more schools in the United States are requiring ACT than SATs. The kids are taking both. Wow. So, so I want to ask, it seems like related to these last two things about how much of either the results that you found or the questions that you're asking are specific to math. For example, how much, how much of the, the circuit, the, the specific circuits that you, or areas that you found in your studies are specific, uh, well, to the test what you're doing, which is basically simple calculations. Mm. I don't. I I'm not a great believer that of modularity and encapsulation uh, encapsulation of modules. So I don't believe that any of these regions are necessarily math specific. But I think that these regions, and that's the million dollar question for whatever regions uh, reasons, their computational properties are very well suited to these types of tasks and these types of processes. And actually, Nicole and I were just discussing this. One of the ways in which you could imagine some of the left hemisphere uh, integrity and 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 function to interact is via phonological processing and the idea that some of these math facts are encoded in a, in a verbal format and uh, there's rich phonological representations. That's up for grabs as well, whether that's true or not. But I certainly don't think this is the math area, right? Um, and and I, I think the white matter results directly speak against that because they say, you know, it's about the connectivity and it's about, and, you know, we can now do probabilistic tractography where we see, okay, so these left hemisphere white matter regions are correlated with math. Well, what do they connect to, you know, and what's the function of those regions? So I think it's, it's kind of, you know, there's certain areas in the brain that say in the, in the ventral stream, the fusiform phase area, sure, they seem to have some very, very specific and circumscribed functions. But when you get to something as complicated as mental arithmetic, you're dealing with circuits and you're dealing with the co-option of certain computational architectures and exactly what those are and what they do and how they're shared with other domains. I, you know, that's what we're looking at. Linking back to our previous tech, our previous tape with Gordon Shepard, their old factory, but... Anyway, just for those who follow this. Yeah, if you're keeping up. Did you say tape? So, tape is a, an anachronism. Uh, we don't actually use tape. <laughs> <laughs> this, was the, this was the advance over the, the tube. This, uh, Wait, your brain is about to screw the tube. There's no tape. No anyway. tape. Oh, my goodness. Well, how, how then are you... Uh, anyway, so... It's done with so it's, I was at Caltech for a long time, and uh, it turns out about 60% of our students were left-handed. Okay, so this is uh, this turns out to be something you hear, which is that there's uh, yeah very high percentage are left-handed, and you don't know if that predisposed them. Well, there are a lot of complications in that, and of course the other thing you hear all the time is that there's a relationship between aptitude for math and aptitude for music. Any. Thoughts, That's one of those things that they You want the quantitative data? Yeah, I, want the, I want the quantitative want the data. data because that's another one of those that I get... Con so there's two things that I normally get asked about. First of all, gender differences in math. Right. 
there's a lot of you know we didn't ask that you know, no uh, <laughs> there's a lot of talk about that but when you look at the data there's a researcher called Janet Hyde who does these massive meta-analyses the effect sizes are tiny for the gender differences that's the one the music and math I find it fascinating sure but there is very little empirical research and it's really difficult to say at what level do the two connect and why would they be connected well there are a number of people doing imaging stuff with musical aptitude right so absolutely yeah but not together with math. Yeah, right. So also, there's a different kind of math, right? I mean, <laughs> it seems that in your work, you're comparing like a multiplication problem that I haven't memorized. Yes. With one that I have memorized, and yes. you see those are done differently. And the multiplication problem that I haven't memorized, most strategies for it involve decomposing it into pieces that I have memorized and then putting them back together. And but then there's another kind of math that doesn't have anything to do with anything that I've ever memorized. It's like Absolutely. Some, some, like visualizing dynamics or something like that, understanding some kind of the relationship between some crazy Greek letters and some dynamical thing that they might so represent. You're talking about just being country music and jazz. Sorry, uh, I just don't... Uh, I wonder, has anybody ever, when they're interested in where in the brain we do math, does anybody ever look at where in the brain mathematicians do the stuff that they call math, which is yep. basically the same thing. So, I, first of all, I totally agree with you, and I should really refrain from calling my work math. It's really, I work on arithmetic, right? That's that's the limits of it. But the interesting thing is the few studies that have been conducted on things such as calculus, uh, you know, have compared mathematician to non-mathematicians, they all come up with parietal brain regions. So the brain regions that do the basic quantitative stuff early in development still seem to be drawn upon for these high-level skills, which goes back to the point that math is so cumulative. So even if we think these abilities are very different from one another, there seems to be, at least from what we see at the brain level, some tying together they're all scaffolded on the same sort of mechanisms. How that scaffolding process works, I don't know. Um, but you, you do seem to see that in, in, in you know, the few studies that are known on calculus and comparing brilliant mathematicians to, you know, regular Because some of your imaging beings. about procedural sorts of things was kind of a, a look like premotor cortical regions. Yeah. And those are not... I mean, I, I was sort of struck by that because I think of that as a place where dynamics calculations get made normally. And, uh, right. And I was true, just wondering if... True. Uh, there was some dynamic well, aspect of that. One long tradition in math is actually using manipulatives mm -hmm. early on to actually teach fundamental math relationships. So that gets into sort of premotor visualizing yeah. shapes and how they move around. And of course, a large amount of math itself came as a way to abstract or manipulate shapes and sizes. And of course, you said visualization, and there's a huge visual component to some kinds yeah. of mathematics. Yeah. So here's a question at the kind of the intersection of education and neuroscience. So a lot of organization of neuroscience, you know, you get a big textbook and you have the sensory part and then you have the motor part. This and then you have all the other stuff, <laughs> or or memory, or memory, or association, or something else. around, right? Yeah. And so where does it, this chapter forty-eight? Yeah, <laughs> you don't get to that. Um, <laughs> the, so in education, like, how should we think about uh, arithmetic or reading or something like that? Is a is it a more of a motor task in terms of a generalization of? Uh, 
so you're taking in information. So that's one way to think about education of learning facts and taking in information and learning how to recognize things and all that kind of stuff. But it's also procedural, right? You have to learn how to do things and putting things together and, and building more complicated structures about doing stuff. I mean, certainly that the discussion of math seems maybe more easy to put into a motor context, but you have things like consolidation and chunking and other kinds of things mm -hmm. on the motor end that may be different than mm -hmm. the sensory end. And language is kind of a, has dealt with the interface of motor and sensory from whenever. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, does it fall that way? Does it, you know? No, it's multi-sensory, right? Which is why you see it in, the, in, in regions that we would typically associate in a standard neuroscience textbook with multi-sensory processing. You know? But what about motor? So well, maybe in education, a lot of the what you're actually learning, the most important things are, are organizing things in a motor kind of sense, like a, a motor analogy sense, right? Absolutely. You know, it's not, not to say that it's, it's purely multisensory. There might be motor components drawn into that, you know, that, for example, learning how to write, of course, fundamentally influences your representation of words. There's a beautiful work by Karen James showing that children... Uh, uh, she did two interventions one sort of writing actual words out and the other one just a non-word motor condition and the visual word form area which was typically just associated with the perceptual end of processing words is modulated by the writing exercise so I think there's there's, there's feed-forward, feedback connections between areas that we would consider more sensory, more motor, and they converge then on these multi-sensory circuits as well. So I think it's not going to be possible to break it into those neat categories. But then is it is it even possible in neuroscience? No. Yeah. Is it even possible to talk about a primary auditory... Um, primary auditory cortex when we know it has like massive inputs from, from the visual cortex as well and does lots of, you know, that in, in blind, blind subjects the, 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 the visual cortex starts to take on auditory functions and so forth. So maybe these divisions are, are generally breaking down. No, well, they're, yes, but, but of course. I mean, there are convenience. Well, there are convenience that became a dogma and you know, one of the reasons it's fun to look at education or, or actual human operation, right, rather than the sort of thing you can do with anesthetized monkeys in labs, for example, is that you're actually, you can't, you know, control away for all of the complexity, and you actually have to deal with the complexity, which, of course, is what the, what the brain actually does. So that's one good reason to step into this, this morass. Which or to run. Which <laughs> 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 most people do, right? <laughs> Only the brave stay. In the morass, and once you no longer have funding, then you run. That's, yes. I think yeah. that's the way it works. So one thing about this, the early education, I was wondering if the connection between numeracy and then eventual symbolic representation and uh, ability to map symbolic representations onto numeracy. So there's like these early education programs, this pre-kinder pre education that learning through play, like setting tables, setting four settings for on a table will give you this general base understanding of what four is and, they, and that seems to, uh, the kids can do it very early on so they can have um, early concepts, conceptualization of these more complex math problems um, very early on when they're doing it in the real world environment. And so what's, what do you see as there's that interface between 
sort of those basic magnitude and numeracy under, uh, understandings through the real world and, and eventual mapping of it on mm. symbolic mm. processes. Yeah, that's the million dollar question in our field right now. How does the mapping occur? And how do number symbols, words, and when children learn the count sequence and then learn the meaning of the count sequence and then later the digit representations, how do they get interfaced with, um, with you know, their understanding of quantities that, you know, these are four dots and those are five dots. Or this array of dots is more than this array of dots. And some people in our field believe that it's very simple, that you just map these symbols onto the pre-existing representations. I personally think that the so-called symbol grounding problem in math is far from solved because we, we don't find good evidence between correlations between symbolic number and, and these early non-symbolic representations that are more sort of approximate this intuitions about numbers. So I think that's very much still an open question and one that we need to resolve because that will have direct educational implications. What we know, however, is that you know input early on in informal settings, how much uh, parents talk to their children about numbers and how much they count with their children has a real impact on when they learn to understand the meaning of counting. And understanding the meaning of counting is really the beginning of it all. Because children, first of all, you know, uh, recite the count sequence and it's it's a sing-song. It's mm -hmm. a phonological uh, sequence that has no semantic meaning. Mm -hmm. And then at around three and a half years of age, they make this massive insight that counting has this function. And the function is to determine the number of items in a set. And boom, the whole trajectory kicks off from there. And that's fundamental. And input can modulate at the point at which they make this transition, this insight into what we refer to as the cardinality principle. So I think that's a really important lesson that you know, we, people know about the importance of reading to their children about the importance of language input. But number talk is quite simple as well, right? And it doesn't require parents to be math geniuses in order to talk to their children about quantities. Well, so, there so it is. Me, that, I think that's you, a great note to end on. Well, let me yeah. actually give it, uh, for those of you listening that would like to play with this with your kids, let me give you a suggested little thing, which I've been doing with my kids forever, and that is estimation. And it works the following way. They don't want to finish dinner, okay? So they ask me to estimate how many bites are left. Okay, and then of course they always win because they get to adjust the size of this, how much they put on the spoon to either to demonstrate that I'm wrong, but it turns out they get amazing even at like two or three amazingly good at estimating the number of bites <laughs> and adjusting per spoon. Yes. What quantity you need to make sure that there are actually fewer or greater bites <laughs> than the ones I suggested were there. So That's that kind of math game turns out, uh, which involves estimation, it involves understanding something by grouping, it involves all these things, turns out to be a lot of fun to do. So uh, from UTSA today, uh, for those of you that have young children, try the uh, guess how the much food, food is left on your plate. Which wouldn't work for Charlie's kids because if they don't eat everything, they get they have to do flashcards all night. Push-ups. Push-ups. We can count how many push-ups they do. All right, this is great. Thank you so much, Daniel. I'm sorry for being with us. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. <laughs>